0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor.
0: And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor.
1: This week, is Putin guilty of war crimes?
0: Plus, is Europe facing a political standoff between progressives and populists?
1: And finally, why are overpriced English kitchens so hot right now? First up... In this week's cover piece, The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson, looks at the risks and rewards of labelling Vladimir Putin and Russian soldiers war criminals. Fraser joins us now. Fraser, you write this week's cover piece and you discuss some of the horrific images that we've been seeing coming out of Ukraine. Do you think that what we've seen from the Russian army fits with the definition of war crime?
2: Certainly, if you look at the definition of war crime, you're looking at the targeting of civilians. We have seen that in Russia, we've seen that in north of Kiev, we've seen that in the east as well. So then you've also got, as another definition of war crime, the sort of careless use of artillery in a way which endangers civilians. We've seen that with the shelling of... uh, hospital we've seen that with the shelling of a theatre where children were sheltering so certainly you've got things here which fit the definition of war crime now the trickier question is what do you then do about it do you how do you then identify those responsible Um, Would you, for example, go after the soldier who fired the missile if he was obeying orders? Would you go after his commander or would you go after Vladimir Putin himself? This takes you into this relatively new and um, very complicated era of, of war crimes. You've got the International Criminal Court, that was one used to prosecute um, Slobodan Milosevic, who who died of a heart attack in prison. It was also used to um, prosecute Radovan Karavich. He was the one who oversaw Srebrenica massacre. And he ended up convicted. He's now in prison in the Isle of Wight. Um, Also, Charles Taylor, the the former president of Liberia, he was convicted of war crimes in Sierra Leone. He's now in prison in County Durham. So we have in the British Islands two examples that war crime systems can work, but usually it only works with the cooperation of the country involved. And it's not going to work if Russia doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court, which it doesn't, neither does America, for that matter, and it's difficult to see. Putin or any other Russian commander being given up by Russia and sent to stand a trial in what Putin will absolutely see as a Western system and part of the political campaign against him.
0: But Fraser, if the Russians are never going to cooperate with this, aren't the odds hopeless for, for a war crime system? So so what would be the point of pursuing it in the first place?
2: Well, that's a good question. If I, I've spoken to several members of the British government and officials during this peace, not a single one thinks it is likely, or even that there's a decent chance of any defendants being sent by Russia to go into the court. Uh, now, in, with the case of the former Yugoslavia, you had collapsed regimes. It was quite plausible how you would get one regime coming up and it would give up and Milosevic, or give up somebody else who's wanted by the criminal courts. It's quite possible that you would get a warlord in Afghanistan who might be given up by a new Afghan government. But it is completely implausible to think that either Putin's regime or his successor regime, unless there's going to be some great democratic revolution in Russia, which nobody thinks is on the cards, would ever give them up. So what's the point? Why do we talk about war crimes if nobody's going to end up in the dock? Now, the reason given for that, I, I, by the way, started off being very sceptical about this. I saw this as um, virtue signalling and basically a kind of verbal diversion from the fact that we're pretty impotent when it comes to what's happening in Ukraine right now. And we like to tell ourselves, oh, this is a war crime and indulge in the fantasy that there's going to be a trial. But there is a practical purpose to this. Now, one of the practical purposes is that it can certainly help send a message to the rest of the world that what Putin is involved in is not a standard war, this is a pretty bad war, and one which you should not be neutral on if you're India or if you're South Africa. So we can have a diplomatic purpose in trying to persuade neutral countries to come out against what Putin is doing. The second purpose, is to say to the russian commanders that this is a completely different ball game you're fighting you're invading a country in 2022 in an era where spies can eavesdrop on what you say, where your orders can be picked up, where there's a mound of digital evidence, and you can absolutely be held um, responsible for this in years to come, and you may never be able to leave Russia again, because if you do, then you will be wanted for a war crime which nobody wants. So there is a hope, I wouldn't put it much more strongly than that, a hope that if you document these war crimes in real time, you will make people think twice before perpetrating them, and you might even make Putin's critics think twice about letting him continue this campaign.
1: And Fraser, in your piece, you talk about some of the involvement that Britain is having with keeping track of the evidence. What did you discover?
2: that Britain is pretty much outsourcing much of Ukraine's own war crimes investigation. There are two underway. You've got the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Dominic Grabb, who himself is a former lawyer, uh, has given a million quid to help the prosecution in The Hague start there. And then there's the help that Suela Braveman, the Attorney General, is giving to Irina Vedikova, who is her, um, not quite her opposite number, but Ukraine's prosecutor general. Now, What they're trying to do is to assemble forensic evidence, to get witness statements, but in a way that will hold up in court. That is trickier than it seems. Take the Syrian conflict, for example. There's been something like three and a half million videos submitted as evidence to war crimes there, of which only about half a million have been examined, and of these, barely 8,000 have been verified as credible evidence. So the amount of evidence you need to go through is not enough to show pictures of dead bodies. It's horrifying, but it's not proof of a war crime. You need a far higher bar of evidence and right now, a whole bunch of British lawyers, even British policemen, SO15 and the Metropolitan Police, for example, have got a war crimes division. I didn't know about that, but they're helping to investigate. Rwanda, people who end up washed up on Britain's shores looking for refuge, will have stories to tell. And the British police are actually quite good at documenting these stories and using them in a way that could be used for a future criminal trial. So you've got a lot of countries offering Ukraine help, but in the same way that Britain was one of the first countries to give military help, we were also one of the first to give legal help in building pretty quickly the case against Putin. And what really jumped out at me was the fact that the Ukrainians believe in a matter of weeks they'll be able to start naming the Russian guilty men, and saying it's ready for them to come to trial. Now compare that to Britain, where it takes two years for a rapist to come to trial now. The wheels of justice in this country move very, very slowly. The Ukrainians are moving very fast, and we're doing that because they want the Russians to know right now, not in five years' time, not in ten years' time, but right now, that there is a case against them, that there are eyes and ears on them, and that in this digital era, it's very, very easy to document war crimes as they happen.
0: Why is it, Fraser, that politicians in the West have been, it seems, quite careful not to accuse Putin personally of the charges of, of war crime? I mean, Boris Johnson, for example, said in a video to the, to the Russian people, he said, your president stands accused of committing war crimes, but doesn't make the accusation himself. Why are they being so careful about the language?
2: Well, because this is a kind of a nuclear button to press. Now, there is a, a logic that if you want a dictator to go then you should make it easy for him to retreat and leave some rope to climb down leave a bridge to retreat across Uh, there's even an argument saying that african dictators should be given like you know five million dollars and allowed to retire in comfort as long as they leave the country peacefully because when they don't, they can adopt a scorched earth policy. If you accuse Putin of being a war criminal, then you say to him that anywhere he goes outside of Russia, he's liable to be arrested. No more G8 summits, no more anything for him. So once you do that, you make it, the argument goes, you make it less likely that he is going to walk away from Ukraine, and you make a negotiated peace a lot less likely. So even though they would love to accuse Putin of being a war criminal, and that Joe Biden actually did in one of his famous ad-libbed comments, but that was one of Biden's, Biden's mistakes. So nobody is calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal, because if you do do that, first of all, it's not a phase you can really bandy about, it's got a very distinct legal meaning. And if you do that, then you really make it more likely that he will fight to the end. Fraser, thank you very much.
0: We're now joined by Michael Bryant, the author of A World History of War Crimes, who writes in The Spectator this week about what the limits put on acts of war in the past can teach us about atrocities committed today. Michael, you write in The Spectator this week about the history of limitations put on cruelty in war, and you have written the book on the subject, A World History of War Crimes, do you think that, let's say 50 years from now, if someone writes a similar book, will there be a chapter on Ukraine?
3: I don't think there's any question about it, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is the most uh, you know, shocking series of, uh, of violent war-related incidents in Europe. I guess the Balkans, certainly the Balkan Wars were bad in the 90s, but... Uh, Ukraine is uh, part of the heart of uh, heart of Europe, and uh, what is happening in, in Ukraine evokes memories for a lot of people of uh, of World War II. And of course, Ukraine suffered tremendously, you know, under the yoke of uh, of the Nazis during during World War II. So that is the precedent that people are going back to, in trying to gauge the significance of this. Yeah, I, I think it's. Uh, it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's probably going to have its own chapter before it's all said and done. And, and the length of that chapter will probably depend on what happens with, uh, with Putin and with um, Ru- Russian military officers. Will there in fact be, as, as Vladimir Zelensky is demanding, uh, you know, criminal legal accountability for, for the crimes being committed there? He, he wants to see a Nuremberg Tribunal or Nuremberg-style tribunal resurrected and used to prosecute these these Russian perpetrators, and and who knows that that could happen at some point? It's hard it's hard to imagine that, given the the power and the nuclear status of uh, of Russia. But you know, none of us can foresee the future, and um, it's it's still a theoretical possibility. It it could happen at some point, and if not to Putin himself, then perhaps to some of the commanding officers in the field, in some of these Ukrainian cities that. Uh, have been retreating and exposing the bodies of civilians uh, who clearly were, were murdered uh, in, in cold blood, at least from, from you know, uh, the prima facie evidence thus far. I'm, I'm sure there will be other investigations done to ascertain the full range of it.
1: And Michael, your, your piece this week talks a little bit about the history of war crimes. For listeners who might not be aware, could you perhaps give a little kind of potted history of how the definition of war crime has evolved throughout the centuries?
3: Yeah, in, in my book, I, I really tried to cast a very, very wide net. and So I go way, way back to ancient civilizations, and I, I try to make an argument, which I think is, is a truthful argument, that so many of the limitations on war were, were ceremonial and religious and had to do with efforts to, to integrate society with the cosmic order, the kinds of things that's hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around today. Certainly, we don't necessarily you know, subscribe to these, uh, these conceptions of war or of, uh, of social organization. Uh, as ancient peoples did. But the, my, my point in devoting the first couple of, actually, actually the first three chapters to this history is to underscore a critical point, and I think it's important for us to bear this in mind today too in the midst of the Ukrainian crisis, which is that human beings have never... Insofar as we can tell, regarded war as being a free-for-all, just a a zone of you know licentious violence in which soldiers can do anything that their weaponry can allow them to get away with. That has never been the case. Now, in the book I try to, to make another argument that humanitarian concerns for curbing warfare and the worst you know, extremes of warfare do not really develop in world civilization until much, much later, and, and really not until the 19th century do we see these overtly humanitarian considerations emerging, and then efforts to use international law and eventually international criminal law by the 20th century as a way to uh, to rein in the inherent barbarism of warfare if it's allowed to run uh, off its uh, off its leash. But nonetheless, the, these efforts to restrict or to qualify or to condition warfare go way, way back. And I think it is a part of, um, of human consciousness and of human society. And um, uh, I guess if there is any hopeful message that, that is communicated in my book, it's probably that. We do try, for whatever reason, to impose limitations on war. And uh, as we look at the carnage in Ukraine, it's, it's hard to, to feel uh, anything but unmitigated horror. But at the same time, we should try to balance that horror with a recognition that he, there are human beings who are inherently driven to try to to prevent this from happening. And then when it does happen, then to respond to that in some way. And so I think we're going to see that playing out now. Well, Michael, in terms of that response, uh, what do you think the likelihood is
0: that uh, Putin uh, or, or perhaps Russian generals uh, will pay for their crimes in a, in a court, uh, what is the criminal accountability, uh, the likelihood of criminal accountability? And if it is a, a long shot, what does that long shot look like, do you think?
3: Yeah, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not in a position to assign any kind of percentage. You know, it's a 20% chance, 30%. I mean, I, I, who knows? It, it's, it's, it, it, looks, it looks unlikely that Putin would pay that price Simply because he is palisaded behind this nuclear state that he that he governs and he governs as a a virtual dictator, so it 's unless somebody rises up to overthrow him and then he becomes vulnerable the way that milosevic slobodan milosevic became vulnerable to uh, to indictment and extradition to uh, to The Hague in the late '90s or uh, al Bashir who was the first um, you know, sitting head of state to actually be indicted by the ICC, and then he was deposed after he was indicted, and then sent to the Hague to stand trial. He's in tri- on trial right now. So if something like that were to happen to Putin, then I think there would be an effort, assuming that people believe that there was a what's called in United States law a probable cause to think that he committed these these crimes or, or supported them. Ordered them, or uh, negligently just allowed them to go forward when he knew what was going on. All of this is actionable under criminal law. And um, if he becomes vulnerable in this way, then he—I I think he—he he could conceivably be uh, be prosecuted. Listen, there are different forums in which this can happen, right? It, it doesn't just have to be at the ICC. Uh, he could be tried in any domestic court of any country that is a signatory to you know the genocide convention the, G- the Geneva conventions and so forth uh, they're obligated under their under the the terms of these conventions to pass laws for their legislatures to pass laws uh, criminalizing this behavior and then because there's universal jurisdiction over war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide and these sorts of things those courts could exercise jurisdiction in theory then the courts of Ukraine could prosecute Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, assuming there's a case against Vladimir Putin, I'm not, I, I think there probably is. But again, I, I, I'm basing that on supposition and just seeing things that are going on just like the rest of us are on television. But Ukrainian courts, uh, American courts, British courts could, in theory, uh, exercise jurisdiction over these over these crimes. And of course, you have the possibility that Zelensky dangled just yesterday uh, of, of creating an ad hoc tribunal to prosecute the crimes that, that uh, have been committed and are currently being committed on Ukrainian soil. And uh, the advantage, of course, of that, you know, going to an ad hoc tribunal, would be that you could also charge crimes against peace. Uh, there's that original offense that goes back to, to Nuremberg, right, when the Nazis and the Japanese both were tried. Among men, many other charges, they were tried with uh, aggressive warfare, with invading other countries without provocation, and um, that is considered uh, a, now a part of international customary law. It's specifically prohibited by the statute of, uh, of the ICC and uh, certainly could be chargeable against, against Putin. Uh, I think very clearly chargeable against Putin. You couldn't do it at the ICC because of legal limitations and technicalities. That's off the table at the ICC. But you could do it at an ad hoc tribunal, a Nuremberg-style style tribunal. And uh, along with these other offenses of war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, Zelensky and um, some other Ukrainian leaders claim that uh, that, that genocide is being committed in Ukraine. I, I, I'm not sure that I see that at this point. Again, you'd have to conduct investigations. And investigations are ongoing, right, into what is happening there. So maybe evidence for that will come forward. It's, it's a much, much trickier business, much more difficult to prove. I'm not sure that the threshold of proof has been reached at this point, but but certainly crimes against humanity look like they're on the table. War crimes certainly appear to be there, and then crimes against peace, uh, aggressive warfare, with the invasion of Ukraine. Which, as I mentioned mentioned in uh, an article I did or interview I did with Time Magazine, from my perspective, that's the most serious offense. It, it's you know this invasion, this illegal invasion under international law, is what sets in motion all of the other crimes that are being committed there. So for me, that is the cradle. You know, that's the, that's the taproot of, um, of Putin's criminality and the criminality of the Russians was that initial decision to invade Ukraine.
1: Oh, Michael, thank you very much for joining us.
3: You. You're welcome.
0: Next up. This week, the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, was elected for a fourth term in office with a large majority. Meanwhile, in France, Emmanuel Macron... Faces a much harder fight from Marine Le Pen than many expected. Paris based author Gavin Mortimer analyses the changing fault line in European politics in this week's Spectator and joins us now along with journalist and author Tibor Fischer. Gavin, for your piece this week, you look at the re election of Viktor Orban in Hungary and the upcoming French election against the backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that Macron will be looking at the populist victory of Orban and be worrying about his own uh, election rivals?
4: Yes. Uh, The tweet that Marine Le Pen sent on Sunday night as soon as uh, the result was known was, when the people vote, the people win. That was to, to the undecided, to the abstainers in France saying, change can happen if you vote. And she believes that the populist force is with her. And I think that Macron is, is rattled. I think he's in trouble. Uh, he's resorted to the usual at this point in, uh, in past elections of just going on about the ex- dangers of extremism. Le Pen today said, the French no longer believe in the bogeyman, the werewolf. know I'm not an extremist. And so Macron, I think, sees the Orban win as... Um, as a bad omen for Le Pen it's a good omen and um, I think that Macron's been very surprised at what's happened in the last month beginning of March he was 18 points clear in the polls it was a shoo-in so we thought and now the latest poll he's four points ahead and um, the bounce that he got from uh, his shuttle diplomacy if I can put it that way prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine that's completely vanished. His diplomacy was seen as a failure and he was banking so much on that that he he sort of really didn't bother with campaigning. So he hasn't been visible. Uh, Le Pen has been visible. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left, he's third in the polls up to about 15, 16 percent. He's trying to get a union of the left. And they've been debating, uh, and the only candidate that hasn't been, didn't take part in, uh, in the main TV debate of the 12 candidates, it was Macron. And he's been roundly criticised for that, and I think now he probably realises it was a big mistake.
1: Tibor, as Gavin points out in his piece, Orbán has remained a reluctant participant in the EU response to Russia's invasion. And also, as he points out in the piece, he, he does have a friendship with Putin. How has that been received in Hungary?
5: Well, I, I slightly disagree with this idea that, you know, he's pally with Putin, that he's pally uh, Putin's ally. Um, this is something I think sort of journalists have taken up, chiefly Western journalists have taken up, uh, a line fed to them by the Hungarian opposition. Orbán does business with Putin, like everyone else, like Britain, like Germany. And I don't think um, uh, it, it's fair to say that um, he's been dodging the issue that much. I mean, there was a press conference just an hour ago where with the international journalists who were sort of pressing him, trying to, to get him to sort of uh, uh, show his support for Putin. And Orbán was very firm. He said, Russia has attacked the Ukraine. There is a war in the Ukraine. Obviously his position during the election was, you know, it's not in Hungary's interest to get involved but he's followed the nato and the eu line to the letter which he again reiterated in the press conference he has announced that he talked to putin today uh, he's suggesting a ceasefire and a sort of ceasefire meeting in budapest so we'll see what happens there
0: and gavin le pen has been closing the gap recently in the in the polls as you mentioned macron's 18 point lead seems like a, a thing of the of the distant past now do you think it is likely uh, that she could become France's next leader? Or is that still uh, a bit of a pie in the sky?
4: It's not pie in the sky. Um, I would say it's unlikely, but possible. As I said earlier, she's no long, She's worked very hard to de-demonise the National Front. She's changed it to the National Rally. And of course, she's been helped very much by the emergence of Eric Zemmour, who has made her more palatable. He has re-centred her. So in the past six months, since Zimmel announced his uh, he was standing, the reconquest, the hostility from the left, from a from left-leaning media, has been very much directed towards him. Uh, Le Pen has worked hard to, soft, to rebrand herself, not just the party name names. She's often talking about her love of cats, her love of gardening. And she's focused, too, on she's talked about the disaster that was 2017. When I say the disaster, she got into the second round, but then she was given a good old drubbing in the live TV debate uh, by Macron. And uh, she was said to have fallen into a depression that summer. And there was really talk of did she have a future she's come back and she's, she's, she's learned from those mistakes. She's focused heavily on the economics this time around she's there's a big interview today in in le figaro very presidential where she said i am ready to govern and she's leaning by her desk with a french flag in the background so the what she's trying to convey is she's more mature she's more experienced she's ready to lead and it's just whether people believe her and also because the left hate macron so much and that that that's the right word hate i can't remember such a divisive politician since margaret thatcher you either worship macron or you absolutely despise him and i think that's going to be crucial so if as expected it's le pen and macron in the second round i i have a feeling that there is enough people on the left who will say you know what le pen isn't so bad she's certainly not as bad as macron let's give her a chance
1: and Thiebel, what do you make of this idea that Gavin poses in his piece that, that Macron and Orban represent two sides of Europe's culture war, the, the progressives versus the populists? Do you think that's a fair assessment?
5: Well, first of all, the term populist is, is just generally used to sort of smear someone you don't like. I mean, I've, I've yet to see anyone who's come up with a very convincing definition of what populism is. Um, my view on Macron is that um Essentially, he's a sort of used car salesman, a a flim-flam man um, who doesn't really have any principles. And that he got in last time because the voters didn't like the idea of Le Pen. Whatever you think about Orban, he does have principles. He's essentially, you know, a conservative, fairly central right politician uh, who bangs on about religion a bit too much for my taste. But there are lots of Christian Democrats um, in Europe. And indeed, if you look at American politics, God is never very far away. So I I think that they're very different in that sense. I mean, Macron represents, I think, the EU establishment who have been having lots of problems with Orbán over the years. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens if Macron gets back in uh, and and how all that works out, because, as you probably know, the EU has started the sort of rule of law procedure against Hungary, although Again, because it's the EU, it's not exactly clear what that means or how that will work or how long it will take.
0: But Tibor, many have called uh, Orban's election victory rigged. What is the evidence for that?
5: Well, there isn't any really. I mean, people go on about uh, Orban, you know, rigging things. It's true, for instance, that the state television is quite reverential towards um, the government. But this is the state television that Orban inherited from the opposition When the former communists were in power, they were in power for eight years. They didn't turn state television into a a sort of hotbed of challenging journalism. And there are plenty of um, media outlets, online television, who have it in for Orban. I mean, the Hungarian equivalent of The Economist, they hate him. The Hungarian equivalent of Private Eye, hate him. The Hungarian equivalent of the TLS, hate him. So there's plenty of um, opportunity for people to hear the other side of the story. Even if you accept that um, uh, as the opposition maintained that the, some of the constituent, constituency choices, uh, changes um, were, weren't fair. If Orban were hanging on by sort of two or three seats that might have some reasoning behind it. But this victory is so staggering that you cannot dispute that he's genuinely very popular. And there are two reasons I think for the success of the, his success in the election. One is the war because the opposition, you know, did make the mistake of suggesting that Hungary should be getting more involved, which clearly went down very badly with the voters. And the other thing is they had this uh, anti-Orban alliance. Basically, all the opposition parties in the parliament banded together a very unlikely set of bedfellows from the left to the what was used to be the far right. And on paper, they should have done very well, but they didn't. And I suspect the, 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 the answer to this is that although the party leaders in Budapest made this arrangement to carve up things if they got in government, their voters actually didn't like the idea of the alliance because if you're a left-wing voter, you probably don't want to help a far-right party. And even within the left-wing alliances, um, left-wing party A members may not like left-wing party B. I mean, they didn't just lose, they were thrashed. And the Fidesz vote this time, I think I'm right in saying, is the biggest vote any party has received in the democratic era.
1: And Gavin, how important do you think the figure of Putin will be in both the first and second round of the French elections?
4: Not very big. I think that the, it's the economy that is the major preoccupation of the French and uh, the, the rising inflation, the rising energy prices... The rising crime is also a factor, but it 's mainly the economy and as I said earlier that 's what le pen that 's where that was her great weakness exploited by macron in the two thousand and seventeen election so she 's worked hard at that now of course it 's I mean, interesting that this question of, of different visions of Europe because of course macron can point to, to a lot of unemployment in France at a ten year low. Um, foreign investment is coming in, uh, tech companies made a um, a record profit last year there's also been i think 25 unicorns so startups valued at more than a um, uh, billion dollars so so macron's france is working really well this the startup nation that he talked about five years ago but the other half of france or, or probably more of two-thirds of france is not working well and this is the this is the majority that le pen appeals to so there's the deindustrialization. there's the cost that i've just mentioned there's a rise in crime and it's very much these two visions so it's not just in europe but but in france of course it's macron is very pro-european he gave this big rally on saturday at a rugby stadium in the west of paris and eu flags were very prominent there and he criticised Le Pen and Zemmour for their anti-European sentiment. But Marine Le Pen's pitch is that it's the somewheres and anywheres. It's the the haves and the haves nots, the winners of globalization and the losers. And she's saying that we must put France first. Macron is Europe first. And this is at the heart of the French election.
0: Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Tibor.
1: And finally. How much would you be willing to spend on your kitchen? The answer for some seems to be a lot. And the fashionable choice at the moment is a faux traditional English-style kitchen. Writer and art critic Laura Freeman explores this phenomenon in this week's Spectator. And she joins us now along with Stacey Shepard, creator of the design blog The Design Shepherd. Laura, in your article in The Spectator this week, you say that kitchen renovations have become a hugely expensive and popular business. When do people start spending so much time styling up their kitchens?
6: Well, I I think it's funny because I think once you'd have spent a lot of money on your drawing room where you would have received people, you know, on your Regency sofa or whatever. And I think now um, we're so obsessed with cooking that you have an incredibly expensive, big open-plan kitchen with glass doors onto the garden and you spend sort of upwards of, you know, £60,000 on it. I think the thing that I find more amusing... Is, is people now spending vast amounts of money to have a sort of dishevelled, rustic, um, homespun look. And where do you think that's coming from? I mean, I, I slightly blame and praise companies like Plain English and Devol that have sort of elevated the shaker cupboard to, you know, a luxury product. And and the whole sort of shaker ideal of, um, you know, very pared back, beautiful workmanship, you know, very simple, um, rather kind of humble, it is now sort of elaborate and exquisite.
0: Stacey, as... An interior design blogger, uh, have you noticed this surge in popularity for kitchen renovations that that Laura writes about in her piece?
7: Absolutely, yes. I think the, the trend for the kitchen becoming the heart of the home has been you know, in process for years now. And like Laura says, people are entertaining in their kitchens. It's become sort of like the main hub of the home. And we're seeing a lot of like the glass box renovations, like big, huge extensions on houses to house the, the kitchen. And and like she says, the the trend heading towards those more kind of authentic, rustic kitchens um, is definitely coming to the fore now.
1: And Laurie, you talk in your piece about the sort of American affection for these sorts of kitchens.
6: What, where do you think that's coming from? <laughs> well, so Plain English launched a Greenwich Village showroom last year so that now, you know, if you're doing up your you know Manhattan townhouse or your Brooklyn Brownstone or your Long Island beach house, you can, you can put in one of these beautiful kitchens handcrafted in Suffolk and shipped, you know, right across the Atlantic. And, and I do think it's funny because there's sort of a mismatch between these companies that have very good sustainable credentials and they they use sustainable woods, and then they're not using plastics. But then I think if you're going to import, you know, an entire kitchen across the ocean, I think you're rather undoing some of the good that you might be doing.
0: And Stacey, you mentioned that you think that the, the, the kitchen has, for a while, been becoming the heart of the home. And Laura, you mentioned that perhaps that might be because people uh, uh, used to have people to cook for them in the Regency days, and now and now the, all the entertaining is moving there. I mean, what what social trends do you think, Stacey, uh, uh, have made the the kitchen the heart of the home uh, is is it things like you know people not having large fireplaces anymore in drawing rooms so the the kind of socializing gravitates away from those kinds of areas
7: yeah i think open plan living has has led to this quite a lot so now the kitchen is open to the entertaining spaces in a lot of des- um in a lot of home design and whereas before the kitchen used to be hidden so you'd think of like the english scullery and it would be hidden downstairs away from the entertaining zones in like georgian homes um, whereas now they really are central points in our home and we want to use them as like a, as a, a statement piece, as a showstopper. You want people to come in and and see your kitchen and see that it, it says something about you and your personality and your lifestyle. And I think kitchens are a really important way to show people how you live. And if you have if you have a large house and you love entertaining, then the message that it gives about you, uh,
6: you know, obviously you want that to be the right message. But I think the funny thing is it's the downstairs moving upstairs, so it's the kind of fetishization of larders, pantries, scullery, boot room, flower room, and all those kind of, you know, little behind the scenes bits of, of, of a country house, say, are now sort of, you know, you take all that, that those design details and you make them the, the showpiece of your kitchen. I
1: mean, Laura, with the amount that people are spending on their kitchens, presumably some of these kitchens do actually still have staff. Working and all sort of helping. I mean, some of the amounts that people spend are kind of astronomical.
6: Well, all the websites sort of say, starting at £34,000. <laughs> you're like, well, that's for two units. And that's before you have even done your Carrara marble <laughs> workshops. I also love the fact that, you know, you even if you're, you know, kind of in central London, if you're in Belgravia, you have your Arga. But because is a pain to cook at, you have a huge range cooker as well with gas. And so these multiple, multiple appliances. Um, but I also love some of the little design details. Like, I think it's become very fashionable in World of Interiors to have one of those old fashioned. And fairy liquid bottles that they don't sell anymore, and you kind of fill it up from from the new ugly see-through ones. And I looked on eBay, and these old bottles they go for about twenty-five quid. Um, and I just love the idea of the sort of the, you know the luxury fairy liquid bottle.
1: <laughs> we should hang on to our bottles now because in years to come. And Laura, tell us about your own kitchen because you mentioned it in your piece. And to my mind, it's absolutely lovely. But you sort of <laughs> set it against these kitchens.
6: Um, well, I've lived in my flat for eleven years, and my kitchen. I measured it for this piece, and it's about seven foot by seven foot. And uh, I always have these grand ambitions that I'm going to kind of do it up and knock down the hostess hatch and make it a bigger kitchen. I've never been bothered because I can't bear the idea of the dust and disruption. Um, and actually, I've you know entertained 12 people for dinner um, in this tiny kitchen. So it's amazing what you can do with a, a very small amount of workspace.
0: And Stacey, I think I'm going to have to ask you the same question. Can you describe your kitchen for our listeners?
6: Yeah, my
7: kitchen is also very, very small. (laughs) It's definitely not my personal style, but when we moved in, it was a brand new kitchen. So I would have felt terrible ripping it out to replace it with something that was more me at the time because it was a perfectly good kitchen. And I think when Laura wrote in the article about the property where the house changed every two years with the new owners that came in, I think that's something that a lot of people have to consider these days because especially during the pandemic, we had a chance to to reevaluate the kind of consumers that we want to be. And we're seeing the rise of the more conscious consumerism now where people are looking for sustainable options and they're trying not to be quite as wasteful and, and go on this kind of take make waste model um, that we've been living on. And with the rise of the circular economy, I think people are, are being a little bit more mindful now about following trends and ripping out perfectly good kitchens on a whim. And we're seeing companies cropping up that are actually now taking people's, you know, k- kitchens that they're wanting to remove from their home and then selling them on to people who are looking for those designer kitchens that would normally cost £60,000. But because someone's wanting to get rid of it to upgrade to the latest trendy kitchen, they're able to resell that on for maybe twenty or £30,000 or, or less to someone who has the aspiration of that designer kitchen, but maybe not the budget that matches.
1: And Laura, you do, you, do you end your piece by saying be careful what you wish for when it comes to kitchens? What's, what's your example that you use?
6: <laughs> well, my mum, my who, you know, in her 60s finally got the kitchen she had dreamed of all her life. And now whenever she's cooking, she moans, she says, I walk miles in this kitchen. <laughs> um, and she goes round and round and round the kitchen island. Um, and she looks back very nostalgically on her very, very first kitchen that she shared with my dad in a little flat, which was a, you know, sort of perfect ship's galley kitchen, which she said was hyper-efficient.
0: And Stacey, finally, you you said that uh, your kitchen actually uh, is not the, the 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 perfect kitchen you would have chosen when you when you first moved in. If money were were no object at all, what would be your perfect idea of a kitchen? Um,
7: I do really like the kitchens that that we've talked about today, like the Devol and the Plain English. I like the kitchens that are made of natural materials that have lots of little tactile details, fluted glass, maybe, or textured um, handles ones that you can see have been handcrafted, carved, you know, really the craftsmanship really speaks for itself. So Duvall's Sebastian Cox kitchen, I really, really liked that one. And also the Haberdasher's kitchen, because there's something slightly different about them. I know they're really well known for the shaker kitchens, but the the ones they've done like, like those two are really, you know, interesting. They're, They're not seen by all the other kitchen manufacturers. It's something a bit experimental. And I think the way that they sometimes work with up-and-coming or younger designers like Sebastian Cox to bring something new to the market is, is really interesting. So I would definitely go with something something like that, a bit rough and, you know, rustic and, and urban.
0: Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Stacey. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.